you know the phrase, good things come to those who wait, right? Is that true? How long do you have to wait? What do you have to put up with while you wait? What do you have to go through? What good things are at the end? Remember, and we're looking at Isaiah, this is primarily about God, who he is. So, how much will God put up with while he waits? How long will he wait? What good will there be at the end? Let's pray as we look to God's word this morning. God, we come to your word today to learn more about you, who you are. God, we pray, please open our eyes so that we will behold wondrous things out of your word. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. As we continue in the book of Isaiah, we're looking at chapters 9 through 12, uh, starting in verse 8 of chapter 9 there. I originally targeted chapters 9 and 10, but once we got in there, once I got in there, I just realized we've got to keep going through the rest of the section, and that ends in chapter 12. And these chapters are the second part of a twin prophecy that starts in chapter 7. Next week, Keith Easton will be here. He's going to preach part of that, uh, so look forward to that. Uh, with the different visiting preachers we've had here, they're focusing on different texts from Isaiah, somewhat out of chronological order. So thank you for your patience. Thankfully, Isaiah is not strictly chronological. Uh, so I think by God's grace, we can continue to have edifying sermons as we, as we look at the, at the chapters in Isaiah. So this morning, these chapters are addressed at Israel, the southern kingdom. The previous chapters were targeted at Judah, the northern kingdom. What was supposed to be the nation of Israel, one whole nation, is unfortunately split at this point in time. There are 10 tribes, the 12 tribes, 10 of them are in the north in Israel, two are a part of Judah in the south. And Isaiah normally speaks to Judah, the two southern tribes, but today in these chapters he takes time to, to look north at Isaiah. And what does he have to say to them? Look in verse 8. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. This is not a positive start. There's a word against Jacob, against Israel. And then follows four sections, four paragraphs of God listing Israel's sin. Four paragraphs. And each of them end with one sentence. You see it in verse 12, verse 17, verse 21, and chapter 10, verse 4. End of each of these four sections, there's this statement. For all of this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. What is this word against Jacob? It is that God is angry at sin. For all this, his anger is not turned away. What is he angry about? These sections list several examples. In verse 16, those who guide the people have been leading them astray. Verse 18, wickedness burns like a fire. Verse 19, no one spares another. Verse 21, Manasseh and Ephraim devour each other. They're two of the northern tribes. And together they are against Judah. Chapter 10 
describes people who decree iniquitous decrees, writers who keep writing oppression, people who are supposed to speak and write truth of God's word, who perverted that, to turn aside the needy from justice, that widows may be their spoil, that they may make the fatherless their prey. This is not an encouraging list. God is angry at the sins of his people. And this is not new that Israel is sinning, and that there are consequences. This is 700 years after God gave the law to his people, Israel. He gave them his clear expectations of what it meant to be God's chosen people. And these 700 years have seen repeated examples of these people failing, sinning. And then repeated consequences, often in the form of a foreign power invading and oppressing them for a short amount of time, or a long amount of time and repeated times of them turning back to their God, repenting of their sin, and covenanting anew. We will obey everything you've told us, God. This prophecy finds Israel in a place and time where there is almost no distinction in these cycles anymore. It's just a downward plummet. Israel is uh, in an alliance with an enemy, Syria. Your Bible might translate it, the Arameans. Verse 12, the Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. They're allied with a pagan nation. And even though they're allies, this pagan nation is devouring them. And that itself is part of God's consequence for their earlier rebellion. They're being subjugated by their own ally, Syria. But instead of repenting, instead of fleeing the embrace of their violent ally and to their good God, Israel is stiffening their back. They're bristling against God. And that's probably more indicting than any of the other sins that Isaiah lists and calls them out for. He starts with these words. You might, we might have you skipped over them. You might have noticed that. Verse 9, all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, But we will rebuild with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. They say, we will rebuild. Or maybe they say it this way, we will rebuild. God is judging us, but we will stand on our own. This pride, this arrogance of heart is is the focus of, of God's judgment on them. Israel has been sinning throughout the years as a people. They've been judged and experienced the consequences, but they have stopped repenting. They are not turning back to God. And so God's anger has not turned away. His hand is outstretched still. And this is a hand that is stretched out to strike in in righteous anger for their sin. And in this prophecy, he will bring the consequences upon them with a new enemy, the nation of Assyria. We are introduced to them in chapter 10, verse 5, and God calls them the rod of his anger against Israel. But this time, Israel will be completely overrun by Assyria. The ten tribes of the north will be forcibly removed from their land, dispersed around the Assyrian empire, and their land will be repopulated with captives from other nations. Israel 
was God's chosen people. From Abraham, throughout the generations, he was their God. He gave them the law. He made covenants with them that he himself fulfilled. But while Israel was God's chosen people, each one of them had to choose to worship God. They, they had the advantage. They had the law. They had the covenants. They had God's revelation to them. God dwelt in their midst in the tabernacle and in their temple for years and generations but many were God's people in name only. They had no worship in their hearts. And this put them on the same plane as all other people in the world. They'd sinned against God, they were condemned, and they needed more than just the law to save them. Because God is angry at more than just the sin of his people. God is angry at the sin of all people. When we get to look at the Assyrian Empire, the, the rod of his anger, they themselves are not exempt from the searching eye of the holy God. They are tools in his hands, but they're not morally neutral automatons, let alone on God's good side. While God is using them as an instrument of his wrath, he's still conscious of their own sinful hearts. In chapter 10, we read in verse 12 and 13, when the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. He's going to be used by God, but he, in his own sin, deserves punishment. One scholar comments on him this way, what he did, what he did, conformed to the will of God, but why he did it had nothing to do with that will, but only with his own vaingloriousness. So God warns them, Assyria. Chapter 10, verse 15, he says, Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it, as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood? And after 20 years, 20 years after Assyria comes to the northern kingdom, Israel, and is victorious against them, 20 years later, they come again against God's people. They come to Jerusalem and camp around it, but they go no further. Chapter 36 37 tell that narrative more fully, as well as in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, but it's summarized here in prophecy form, chapter 10, at the end, verse 32 through 34. God says, this very day he will halt at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mount of daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down, and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickest of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. God is angry at the sin of his people, and of the sin of the Assyrians. Is there anyone whose sin does not anger God or that God does not see? Hebrews 4 tells us no. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And Romans 3, verse 19 builds on that. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, 
so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Not just Israel, not just the Assyrians, the whole world. Why is God so angry? We get into God's anger really quickly in these chapters. Normally we start with something else and it builds and it's, it's distant, it's in the background, but it's in the foreground, it's right here. And maybe you're wondering that, why is God so angry? That sounds like a lot of judgment, a lot of condemnation, a lot of death and wrath. Isn't God supposed to be a forgiving God? Isn't he supposed to be the God of love? Isn't he supposed to do all the good things? watched a video from a, a conference several years ago, 2014, Ligonier Conference, and an audience member asked the panel a similar question. The question was, if God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was his punishment so severe and long-lasting? I watched a short video online documentary last week uh, I was talking about the Cuban Missile Crisis and how when the tensions were escalating and everybody was about to push the button or pull the trigger, uh, there's a Russian sub that was underwater. They thought they were being attacked by an American boat. They also thought missiles had already been launched. So they were just about to launch their own nuclear torpedo. And thankfully, one of the guys on the ship who had to agree to launch disagreed. Uh, and the video concluded that that was the closest the world has ever come to being destroyed. That was the, the day the world almost ended. You might agree with that. Or maybe you think of the flood, how only eight people survived that time when God expressed his wrath towards sin. Let me take you back to that question, though, at the conference. Uh, first of all, the panel rightly corrected the question, not if, but since God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was his punishment so severe and long-lasting? And theologian R.C. Sproul was on the panel at the time, and he answered the question. This is what he said. It's a little lengthy. He said, this creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God. And after that, God had said, that the day you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. And instead of dying, that day, he lived another day. And he was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace and had the consequences of the curse applied for some time, but the worst curse would come upon the one who seduced him, whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman, and the punishment was too severe? The question is, why wasn't it infinitely more severe? If we have any understanding of our sin and any understanding of who God is, that's the question. End of quote. The day that Adam sinned was the day the world almost ended. And that it didn't is the incredible mercy and patience of God. If we know at all that God is forgiving and he's the God of love, 
that he is slow to anger and patient, it's because Adam didn't die right away and because you and I did not die right away when we sinned. That we are able to know God is patient is proof that he is. When the Pevensey children enter Narnia and they first hear that Aslan is a lion, Lucy asks, is he safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. Our God isn't safe. He has real wrath against sin, against creatures from the dirt defying the everlasting holy God. And we should no more expect a holy God to not have wrath than we would expect a lion to not have fangs. Israel was told four times that because of their sin, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. But, let me give you a sneak peek into chapter 12. We'll end up there, but look at verse 1 with me. He said, four times, your anger, has, his anger has not turned away. 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 Chapter 12, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. What happened? That God's anger is turned away. He poured his wrath on another. His own son who willingly went to the cross in our place. We sang about that just a moment ago. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. Of course he ain't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you, said Mr. Beaver. He's good. He's patient. If you have not perished in your sins yet, don't test the patience of God like Israel did. Chapter 9, verse 13, it says, The people did not turn to him who struck them. They should have been like a child who was being spanked and they turned to their father with tears and repentance. But instead they hardened their heart and they stiffened their backs. Turn to him who strikes you before it is final. Don't be like this generation of Israel. But listen to Daniel, who was one of those who grew up in captivity, reaping the consequences of those before him. He says in Daniel chapter 9, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. To the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, and all the lands which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you, to us, O Lord, belongs open shame. To our kings, to your princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. And you, who have repented, who are called God's people now, we're not the same as Israel. We're not God's people by birth, but by choice. We are God's people because we have turned to him. All the more, then, we must be angry at sin because God is angry at sin. We should not 
first be angry at the sin of the world around us or our neighbors or our family, but our own. Modern writer Winston Smith said, to exhibit God's righteous anger, you must be angry at sin wherever you find it, especially in yourself. Be angry at laziness in your heart, at apathy, at attraction to the things of the world. Be angry when you see hatred of others, lust, lying, prayerlessness. Be angry at gossip, at divisive words, at murmuring. Be angry at lip service to the king of kings. And when we feel the discipline of our father for when we've not turned from our sin, turn to him who strikes you. We know, he's, we know it hurts. He's not a tame lion, but he's good. He's our father. In these first two sermons in Isaiah, we looked at some very clear pictures of who God is how needy we are standing before God and what God has done about that in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to keep seeing those themes throughout Isaiah. That's the bulk of what Isaiah is about. But here in this passage, Isaiah gives Israel and us a look ahead at where this is going. What's the end game? What is the goal of all this? And we get to see that God will recreate what sin and what judgment have destroyed. He will recreate all that sin and judgment have destroyed. Starting in chapter 10, verse 21. It's a new section. There's a pivot in the thought here. And God makes his promise, 21. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, Israel, be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. God promises in the midst of condemnation and judgment where the ten tribes are to be scattered and to lose their nation for thousands of years, there will be a return. And this was first and partially fulfilled in the nation of Judah. Judah, the two tribes in the south, they were conquered just like Israel was. It was 150 years later, but they faced the same fate. They were taken en masse into captivity in Babylon. They were not scattered. They were taken to Babylon. And 100 years later then, then some of them got to come back. They didn't get to rebuild their nation, but they got to live in their land. They got to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But that was only the start, the, the small first fruits of the fulfillment of this prophecy. And then this passage hints at something more, at a righteous one who will rise to lead them and a second return of the remnant. But they probably did not understand the difference between these events, the first return, the righteous one, and then the second return. And this is something that happens often in Old Testament prophecy. Uh, the prophets are communicating what they know, but they don't understand it all and the people they're listening to or listening to them don't understand it all they don't have the perspective of time like we do to understand the different prophecies and even the parts of prophecies are going to come at different times and they don't obviously have the perspective of omniscient God who's outside of time and sees everything because we certainly don't either 
Uh, so from their perspective, they see coming judgment and uh, a remnant that will return, this recreation kind of like this. There's this field in front of them, and on the other side of that, there's this promise. They have to go through the judgment first, but on the other side, there's this uh, mountain peak that there will be a recreation. There will be a remnant that returns with the coming of the righteous one. But we, by virtue of time and, and revelation explaining it for us, get to see a, a bigger picture, and we get to see it from profile, a different angle. The prophets and the Old Testament people saw, couldn't distinguish from their perspective that there are these two different fulfillments, like two different peaks. From their perspective, they couldn't distinguish one from the other. But we get to see uh, that the first fulfillment, the first recreation, Judah coming back, a remnant, and the full and final restoration are separated by thousands of years, and we don't know how long yet. And they couldn't understand also that before the righteous one could come to restore peace finally and fully, he would have to come as the suffering servant to absorb the wrath of God, the anger of God as sin. This is in the valley there. They could not see this in, in the timeline of, of all these prophecies coming to fulfillment. So some of this has already happened, but most of what is spoken of here is still future tense to us. It's still yet to come. Have you ever noticed that different people can tolerate different levels of disorganization? And between different people, different tolerances, also in our own life, different consistencies. There are certain areas of our life where we're more ordered than others, right? So I can tolerate laundry not being put away longer than my wife would prefer. But that doesn't mean that I don't like order. My bookshelves are organized. My tools have a certain place to go, even though they're normally out when I'm doing projects, which is all the time. Um, I really like organizing a lot of my information with an app called Evernote, which I get teased for. Uh, someone bought me a shirt that has the Evernote logo on it. Um, but you can also find in my office stacks of paper that I have not sorted through in the past year. We're not consistent in our, in our organization. Um, We'll never have perfect order in our life, even if we're striving for that, which I know some of us are not. Um, but this is not so of our God. Our recreating God, though it is still future tense to us now, he will bring a final and full resolution. He will recreate and set everything in right order. There will not be anything that is not put to right. And it will begin with the rise of the righteous one. We see him first in chapter 11, verse one, so follow along with me there. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and the branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist 
and faithfulness the belt of his loins. He's first called the shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots. This is Jesse, the father of King David. And this is another developing profile of who the Messiah is going to be. He's going to come from the line of David, reinforcing some other earlier prophecies. Uh, but it's not just a picture here. Jesse is called a stump. He's called a stump for a reason. It's not a flowering rose bush or a fruitful fig tree. It's a stump. It is dead. It was chopped down. With the same imagery that God described judging Assyria, chopping their boughs off and laying them low, Jesse's large family tree is laid low by God's judgment. But from this stump that God has destroyed in wrath, God will bring life. Not just what sin has destroyed, but God, what God has destroyed in his righteous anger, he will recreate. And this is a, a theme through all, all the scripture, life out of death. God brought life out of Sarah's barren womb. Ezekiel speaks of the dead bones rising again. One other uh, comment here about the character of the righteous one we see, this is not just the shoot of Jesse, not just something that grows out of the stump, uh, an output or an offspring, if you will. It's not just one of Jesse's many descendants. In Revelation 22, Jesus describes himself not just as the shoot of Jesse, but I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. He's not just the shoot, he's the root. Before Jesse was, Jesus was. Jesus was the root of it all. And the glorious morning star as Revelation continues. So don't lose heart that everything is not restored yet. Our aching bodies, the relationships that death has interrupted, the sinful world that causes us so many problems and our own sinful hearts that cause us so many more, these will be put to right. God will come back. The righteousness will come soon and all sad things will come untrue. As Jesus, who was the suffering servant, who was himself laid low by the wrath of God, will rise as the righteous one and he will not just have wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and fear of the Lord, but he will bring those on the earth. He will fully restore Israel, 11 verse 11. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. Israel will be restored. The divided kingdom will be restored. 11 verse 13, the jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. The two kingdoms are restored, all the 12 tribes. And then he will extend the invitation to all nations, 11, verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for all the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. And not just people, but all of creation will be restored. The order of animals, the death that sin brought in the world, that will be turned back. Verse 6 through 8. 
The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion, and the fatted calf together. And a little child shall lead them, and the cow and bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. Throughout Scripture, more and more lists and expositions of how many more ways the world will be created. It will be a new heaven and a new earth. And as our song tells us, the creation, new recreation will extend as far as the curse is found. Anything that sin has broken and God has judged will be recreated. And we'll finish with chapter 12. This chapter 12 gives us a picture, not just what this world will be like, but when we are there, this is what we will say. Chapter 12, verse 1, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, for though you were angry with me, your anger turned away, that you might comfort me. Behold, God is my salvation, I will trust, and I will not be afraid, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the well of salvation, and you will say in that day, give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, proclaim that his name is exalted, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth, shout and sing for joy, O inhabitants of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Let's pray. God, you are the creator and the recreator. And we know that you are angry at sin. You hate sin. Help us to hate it as you do. And God, we know that you will recreate everything that is broken. And we long for that. May it be soon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.